Radio Mano Papachango. you powerful tangential people my name is Fritz I'm currently on the job working for the Forest Service in the beautiful Chugach National Forest here in Alaska I love the podcast and I love the shame exorcisms hello Chris and fellow lovable apes it's Nero here down in Australia I've just picked up a new van and doing the long 18 hour trip back home so thanks for being my companion getting me through these long hours on the road love everything that you and your guests share and lots of love sending out to you and all the fellow listeners peace hey Chris Zachary here in Chiang Mai Thailand I'm currently laying in a very comfortable hammock looking up at some beautiful foliage You can hear people making coffee behind me. It's a pretty funky cafe. Just wanted to say thank you for making the podcast. Thank you for doing what you do. Keep doing it because people like me way out here on the other side of the world really appreciate it. Take care, brother. Thank you so much for those. Keep sending them in. They're great. Um, They're coming in four or five a day at this point. Super cool to hear from all you people out there in the world living your lives Uh, changes that are happening, trips you're taking, relationships that are starting and stopping. It's all interesting. It's all good. Um, I was halfway through putting this episode together um, on Sunday when I got the call from my mom that my dad had died. So I uh, sort of left it hanging. Today's Wednesday. So time to get back in the saddle here um it's a weird thing you know when you've been anticipating something for a long time and then it happens and I've talked about this at some length before on the podcast and uh the one I did with Duncan, particularly a week or two ago. And actually in this episode, which is with uh, Susan Nemchek, by the way, who um, lives and works at Willow Farm in uh, Hygiene, Colorado. If you want to check them out, it's willowfarmcolorado.org. They have a Zen center and um, she's a a healer. And uh, she also works with... um, people who are dying and their families and so it's an appropriate episode I guess um, It it's weird it feels a little weird dropping that on you uh, I don't mean to bum you out or bring you down if you're in some beautiful place somewhere don't uh, you know don't feel bad for me or for my dad or for my mom or for anybody because the the truth is that, um, you know, as I said to Duncan, maybe I'm in denial. Maybe I'm in shock. I don't know. It's hard. These things are, it's a conundrum. You know, you don't, if you're kidding yourself by definition, I guess you don't really know it. But 
I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think that in my father's case, death was like, I don't know, like, like when in a drought, um, if the drought lasts long enough, even a, a big lake dries up and it happens over time. And then one day, that's it. There's no water left. But when did the lake cease to exist? It wasn't really on that last day when the last bit of water evaporated. That lake became transitioned into a, I don't know, a pond, a pool, and then a puddle, and then finally a lake bed, but it ceased being a lake long ago. And I think certain, you know, maybe the most common kind of death is like that. It's not sudden. Now, if someone dies tragically in an accident or, you know, violence or something like that. It's that's a very different situation. But your sort of typical get old, get sick, be subjected to lots of ridiculous, useless medical procedures, um, bureaucracy, the the sort of death that my father experienced. Um that's what it is. It's very gradual. And so the day that it's over is just really another installment in a long process. So I don't know, maybe I'll freak out and lose my mind at some point. But um, at the moment, what I'm feeling is primarily relief that it didn't go on much longer, that it didn't um, subject my mother to a lot more pressure and sadness and that she can start to... um, adapt to a new life and and she's in good shape and she's amazing she's uh you know I don't want to make her heroic or anything but she seems to have a very healthy approach to this my whole family has a very strangely healthy approach I think to these things the the day he died we all got together my aunt my uncle cousins and uh and it basically we just hung out and laughed a lot, um, told stupid jokes, made very uh, inappropriate jokes about death and the you know the whole process. I, I don't I don't want to freak you out by talking about it, but we were at the mortuary yesterday, and I think the woman who was working there got a little freaked out at how much we were joking and laughing, and uh, she said, "I've never." I've never dealt with a family like you before. (laughs) I think she was, I finally, she was laughing along with us, but I think for the first 10 or 15 minutes, she didn't really know what to do. Strange thing there that the whole mortuary thing, um, I'm using the, we're using the, the services of Caitlin Doty's company here in Los Angeles. She's, she was a guest on the podcast a couple of times. Uh, she wrote a book called smoke gets in your eyes about her, time working in a crematorium in Oakland, I think. Um, really interesting woman. And 
very cool, very sort of healthy approach to the whole issue, not trying to upsell you in caskets and, you know, fancy this and fancy that. But it is it is interesting, the language around this stuff, you know, because we were talking about the cremation and, you know, what's to be done with the ashes and where they're going to be kept. And and the woman kept referring to my father's body and after the cremation, his ashes as him, you know, where will you be keeping him? And should we keep him here until you come and pick him up? Or, you know, will we be shipping him to your address? And, you know, will you keep him in this urn or do you want two urns and will you be splitting him? And it's like, that creeped me out a little bit referring to a body as him or even weirder referring to a bag of ashes as him or her. I don't know if other languages do that. Uh, I can't in Spanish. It doesn't feel like that's the way it would have been done. Um, yeah, it's a strange thing. And also I don't know, maybe you can tell me those of you who are in, uh, other countries speak other languages or even other countries that speak English. Is that common in New Zealand and Australia and in the UK is, do you refer to the deceased as him or her? Uh, it's, that's, I don't know. It seems strange to me. Uh, anyway, um, I'm going to play a little tune for you now, which is, uh, let me find this guy's email because it's fantastic. Okay, this is a guy named Jim Figora. He sent me this really beautiful email and uh, a song that he wrote. And I wrote back to him and asked if I could read his email to you. And he said yes. And I also asked him if he had a website where people could find more of his music or anything. And he said, uh, I don't have a page for my music. I'm not trying to sell anything. My banjo is basically a whore that plays around with any good looking guitar it can find. I guess I can be found at random bars in Crested Butte, Colorado during the summer and Bisbee during the winter. Just keep your ear open for that happy twang sound. Um, yeah, so this email uh, is about is talking about his life about 10 years ago and an uh, interesting transition that happens. Okay, here we go. Howdy, Chris. Uh, I've been waiting to share the song of mine with you since I heard your Alaska stories on an early Toma episode. I realized in that episode or two that me and you uh, lived somewhat similar adventures in our youth. To make a long story short, I found myself as a severely depressed 20-year-old in the cornfields of Illinois, studying art at Eastern Illinois University. I knew I wasn't doing what I wanted with my wife, with my life, not my wife. <laughs> I knew I wasn't doing what I wanted with my life, and I was contemplating suicide. 20 years old, contemplating suicide. If you're 20 years old and contemplating suicide, do yourself a favor and try something fucking wild and crazy. You can always kill yourself later. But if you're actually contemplating suicide, that means you're in a position where you have nothing left to lose, right? There's nothing to lose. You're already ready to check out. So why not do something fucking wild and fun first? Then you can check out. Anyway, back to the letter. 
But instead, I figured there might be something better, somewhere far from the sorrowful mindset. So in the middle of the night, I loaded a backpack full of clothes, grabbed my banjo, and stuck my thumb out on the nearest highway heading west. Fast forward a year, and after hundreds of rides, thousands of miles, and saying yes to every opportunity that presented itself to me, I found myself washing dishes at a float plane, accessible only fishing lodge in the middle of nowhere, Alaska. That summer was a major coming of age experience for me, living in rubber tents with brawny Alaskan fishermen who might not know what's going on in the rest of the world and probably don't care. I was a baby-faced Irish kid from Chicago, way out of my element, running from grizzly bears, dealing with mosquito-induced psychosis, and wondering when the sun would finally fucking set. I learned more about life in a couple of months from the people I met up there than in the 15 years I had spent in American public schools. Looking back, I realized that depression may just be an immune system response to being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm so glad I stuck my thumb out and found a glorious world of endless possibility. That summer, I wrote and recorded this song in an attempt to capture the feeling I had during my time in the bush. It's called Land of the Midnight Sun, the dude's name is Jim Fagora. Check it out. Grizzlies 
watch over all those cool glacier streams Waiting for the salmon run In the land of the midnight sun Ladies and gentlemen, I am sitting in the office of Susan Nemchak in a little north of Boulder, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah? Did I pronounce your name right? Nemchak. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Looked like you were about to... In Hygiene, Colorado. Hygiene. Okay, I knew we were on Hygiene, near Hygiene Road, but I didn't know the whole town was called Hygiene. Got its name from being um, a tuberculosis sanitarium. Hmm. Clean water, clean air. Right. Hygiene. <laughs> Did those things actually work for tuberculosis? Clean water, clean air? Actually, they're, um, they say so, higher altitude, and also it was a site for homeopathic treatment really? of tuberculosis. That's what really put homeopathy on the map in, in the U.S. In the Colorado, anyway. Huh. Interesting. I didn't know that. I know homeopathy has a a very long tradition in Europe and is respected far more in Europe than it is in the U.S. Right. There used to be a hundred Hahnemann hospitals in the States before the AMA. Right. And they pretty much ran them out, right. ran them underground. Right. So th- there are several things I, I wanted to pick your brain about. You're such a multifaceted person. I know you're a mother uh, of a very good guy who I've gotten to know in the last few days, Isaac, and um, I've eaten your delicious food, and you have this amazing garden and this beautiful home here, and you're a healer, homeopathic, um, what, what would you call yourself? Practitioner. Practitioner. You do various kinds of therapy that may not be, uh, how can we say, very holistic your approach seems to be very holistic in that it's difficult to say it's exactly this or it's exactly that. You're sort of doing many things at once. You're also, uh, you have a long 
history uh, with Zen Buddhism. How long have you been meditating or practicing? Hmm. Not that long. Ten years, probably. Hmm. And are you a chaplain, or what is this? What I was ordained through Upaya Zen Center. What does that mean? Um, I went through. I started off as a social worker, so um, social work was really about working with traumatized people and marginalized people. So homeopathy came out of that because I wanted to get to places where you couldn't get with conventional therapy. So um, after 18 years as a practicing homeopath, I, I found that it's all kind of a spiritual matter anyway. Mm. And, and if we can really understand our inside world, everything heals more quickly and more efficiently. So I use homeopathy and I give people practices out of my background in chaplaincy and, and Buddhist practice. Because it's all just practice. We're, um, the nature of uh, being ordained in the Zen tradition is that we serving and being of service is really um, part of practice. Mm. And so my lineage is really um, service-based and social action-based. Um, Roshi Joan Halifax was one of my teachers, Frank Osaseski, all about um, really cultivating a stable mind to be of service. Right. So how do we have a stable mind <laughs> homeopathically um, if we can do our work and, and heal our story? Um, or and or have a good therapist, we are more likely to allow our basic goodness to just be what it is that's in us all. And then we're better participants, better humans, um, certainly you know, more engaged in being alive and awake. You're right. Which brings us to the other area I wanted to discuss with you, and we don't need to go there right now, but these are different bases I'd like to touch in the next 45 minutes or whatever time we have. Um, is your work with uh, people who are dying or people who have recently lost someone? I know that's become a focus of your work recently. Mm -hmm. Is that, when you say you're an ordained chaplain, what does that mean? What's the difference between someone who does Zen, goes and meditates every morning, and, and a chaplain? What, what, does that give you some responsibilities? or? It, it, uh, it's intense training, intense training on how to be with what scares us and how to, oh, how to show up and be present um, for others in, in that same way. How do, how do you develop tools yourself to lean into your own great fears and therefore be able to be with others? Would you say is this a particular focus of Zen Buddhism or of Buddhism in general, this focus on confronting and leaning into your fears? I think it's Buddhism in general, but we really, in the, in the order that I am involved in, we really call it to the forefront. Mm. Um, this next Sunday, we're having a Zen peacemaker uh, retreat, which the Zen peacemakers are, they do street retreats and, and really deal with those people on the edge and the margin and, and, mm. and the belief 
system is uh, addressing life with first not knowing, which is that, that childlike curiosity mm. of, of just being there for what is, having an open mind, open heart, and Beginner's mind. Beginner's mind. Suzuki. Yep. That's one of the few Zen books I've read, and I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I remember the the copy I had, just had a picture of him, his face, and he just looked so clear and <laughs> relaxed. Yeah. Yeah. So just it being, having more curiosity and just being alive, and just even imagining going through a day, as a beginner, and and not needing to have ground under where you stand just the openness of mm -hmm. being with what is yeah that's the and does that bring up fear for people yeah we as humans like to pretend that we know what's going to happen so we're going to feel a little bit safer and when you practice with there is no ground groundlessness is is the way of things and we just we just, as humans, it's kind of a natural thing hmm. um, that we would like to have a plan and we'd like to feel safe. And um, God laughs at our plans. <laughs> right. And, and safety just can keep us quiet and a little complacent sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I often think of the fact that um, in Spanish there's this word, aislar. And it means both to insulate and to isolate. Hmm. Same side. Yeah. Yeah. In English, we have two different words for it, but in Spanish. And then, you know, it leads me to think how oh, it's really, it's the same thing. You try to protect yourself mm -hmm. with insulation and you end up alone right. and bored and unhealthy because your body and your mind and your spirit, I guess, are all evolved systems that thrive on challenge and surprise Curiosity. yeah yeah mm -hmm. it's interesting we're the most curious creature mm -hmm. on the planet probably and yet we seem to spend most of our energy trying to protect ourselves from surprises mm -hmm. yeah and it affects our relationships it affects right. and and so here at the farm and what has developed, it was actually in my chaplaincy thesis, is this vision of giving tools to people to practice not knowing and practice, mm. if we practice not knowing in our lives, we're not surprised then right. when we meet our death because right. we've practiced dying. We've practiced you know, not knowing what's to come. Right, and then, and that relates to in my understanding of Buddhism is not particularly profound, but from what I know, it is very much about avoiding attachment and not um, getting caught up in uh, running away from things. Right. So just sort of being centered and letting things come and go, flow in and out of our lives and without yeah. anticipating and or lamenting. And what it sounds like what you're saying about when death comes that you've practiced this flow so much that when right. life itself is flowing away there's not a grasping and you practice it you practice it with relationships too right. in that 
um, we don't of, of how how we love and being open and not self-protective and being aware of when the self-protection is tri- triggered like right. we all have a story that it supports life is dangerous so so that when we speak can speak the truth you know in relationships and we can speak truth to power and we can speak it in a respectful you know timely helpful kind necessary sort of way mm. instead of having all those safeguards in place that disconnect yeah yeah so when you know when it's when we're on our deathbed or when you know that bus comes and takes us out you know we've kept our relationships um clean and so Mm. and so it's about curiosity in in relationship to life right so we tend to compartmentalize we don't really death and life in this country it's we all are walking around or most of us thinking it's not going to happen to us and (laughs) is that funny it's yeah yeah and then how did this happen i know um, I'm just going to take your picture here because you look particularly beautiful in this light. <laughs> and sometimes it's fun to take uh, take the photograph while I'm speaking so people can say, oh, that's exactly when he took the picture, right? <laughs> that was it, folks. Um, yeah, sorry to interrupt you. So, yeah, my, 80, my 80-year-old mother's 85-year-old brother died suddenly at 85. He Nobody saw in- it coming. <laughs> He, he went in for surgery on his knee and he woke up dead. She's like, how does this happen? It's, we... How doesn't it happen? <laughs> how yeah. doesn't it happen? Yeah. How doesn't it happen? I'm always struck by the phrase, you read in newspapers or you hear in the news, he lost his life. He lost his life at the age of 77. And he lost his, in the battle with cancer. He lost his life. Right. And it's like, he didn't, he didn't lose his life. He lived 77 years of it. You can't steal money I've already spent, you know? It's like you lose right. your life if you're four and you, you know, then, yeah, okay. Well, and we're full of judgments in this hmm. humanity yeah. of, of what should happen. Yeah. What should happen for others and what should happen for ourselves. The untimely death. Uh, right. You know, life was stolen. <laughs> you know, we have so many euphemisms yeah. for it. Rather than... You know that that deep, deep fear of grieving, and that we won't be able to handle what comes. And people meet amazing things, both in joy and in and in like the worst possible things. And people continue to breathe, and continue to be to move through it. And so, I what we do a lot, and what. What I feel really strongly is about is how do we how do we engage in tools? How do we use those tools to really know and and practice? And even when we think we can't take the next breath, that we do anyway. So the same tools that you're using to teach people to be comfortable with not knowing can be used to right. know, right? To know that you're going to get through this. And that's the bearing witness part. Hmm. So the three aspects um, is not knowing, bearing witness, and then correct action. So the bearing witness is what exactly is happening here? 
am I grieving out of mm. like what happened now, or why does it feel like I can't stop thinking about my mother when it's my dog that died? Right. You know, because we are stacked up with things we haven't haven't met. Yeah. Um, and then when it comes on us like a waterfall, and we're overwhelmed. It's usually not necessarily just of this time. Yeah. Grief is tricky that way. And loss is tricky that way. You know, I, I I try not to get very personal in the podcast about other people in my life, but someone close to me is dying now. And it's really it's interesting. I've spoken to some friends about this, and I maybe you have some insights into into whether I'm kidding myself or not. But I feel like I am. How can I say this? It's, we're talking about my dad, and he's as you and I talked about this at dinner the other night. I feel like he's been dying for years, and I've been aware of that. And so when he takes his last breath, it won't be the day he died. It'll be the day he stops dying. And I feel like I've been very conscious of the transition that he's been slowly going through so that when he actually dies, I, and this is where the delusion comes in maybe, I don't think I'm going to be that rocked by it. Even though I'm very close to my dad and very similar to him. And we, we sound the same. We look very similar. There's a lot of reflection. And so I'm sure, sure there will be some, some awareness of my own mortality that always comes, I think, when your sure. parent dies. But um, what, something to consider, though, is... We never know how we're going to feel. Well, that's it. I mean, I'm trying to be <laughs> humble about this. That's why I'm, but I'm we, saying I'm being also, full of shit yeah, here. But we, um, you can, I mean, that's a, a really beautiful thing about relationship, especially the complicated relationship of parents. And we can think we know what the right medicine is. Yeah. We can think, but I hold to the idea that we die in an instant. He's dying no more than you and I are dying. Hmm. Um, and that's his work. His difficult mind, his despair, his current challenges are he's still working. And life is working on him, with him, as a part of him. And his relationships are intact. And, and you are forced, encouraged, invited into loving him as he is and how do you do that how do you do that without judgment because our task with ourselves and with others is the same i mean how do we look at our lives wholly and um with with compassion and kindness and also honesty and transparency like dad you're scaring me and I realize I want something for you that you might not want for, your, want for yourself. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, feels kind of disrespectful of me to want that. But I do that. I, I love you. And that's kind of a, it's an interesting way that I'm trying to love you. <laughs> yeah. See, I think that's what I, that's part of what I mean where I say that I've been conscious of the transition because my relationship with 
him has also gone through the transition of you know come on dad let's you know go for a walk let's do this let's do that you gotta hey use it or lose it buddy you gotta use your body you gotta get up you gotta get up to just finally acknowledging like he doesn't want to mm-hmm. like he just doesn't want to and I'm imposing something on him that isn't it's my path it's not right. his path and so let go of that and we do that out of our own discomfort right exactly and, you should and be more own... like me it's not that I'm Mr. Fitness or anything but yeah and and really being responsible for that is a very loving thing and and with him yeah you know, because it is, it's that. We're angry at people for dying. Sure. You think that's, I, I haven't worked with a lot of people around death and dying, but I imagine that might be a really psychologically confusing. Sure. Because a good friend of mine died and I was so pissed off at him. And it was really hard. It was a hard thing to process. Were you mad at him for leaving you? I was well, it's complicated. He's the guy who was on this podcast a few times. We got to know each other and became friends through the podcast. Justin mm-hmm. is his name. He's a serious traveler, and he just took too many risks. He he saw himself as like a superhero ninja kind of guy. And we got to be friends. We spent a month together in Thailand and took motorcycles up in the mm-hmm. mountains. And he just... And I spoke to him about it. He was young. He was 34 or something like that. And I remember talking to him about it. It's like, dude, you don't need to push it that far. You know, you you don't need to go to the top of every mountain. You can go up 80% when there's still plenty of oxygen and it's not that dangerous. And you get amazing views. It, it's not necessary. You're not proving anything by taking those final extra steps. He used to scale skyscraper skyscrapers under construction in Manhattan Mm -hmm. and take photos of himself like out on a girder at you know a hundred Is that how he died? How did he die? No, he died in the Himalayas very mysteriously. His body was never found. He he was living in a cave with a sadhu Mm -hmm. and uh there are different theories about what happened, but the, it seems that the sadhu probably killed him, pushed him off a cliff, and then they threw his body in a river, and nobody ever found it. Wow. It was a big, it was a big thing. So I was angry at him. You know, partly I think there's probably anger at people leaving us anyway. But in his case, it was also like, come on, guy. Mm-hmm. You know, your life doesn't only belong to you. It belongs to people who love you as well. And so when you take these dumbass risks, you're... I think the most powerful thing is the last thing you said. You know, your life belongs to the people who love you, and I love you, and I don't want you to go, and you're scaring me. Yeah. You know, we we tend to do the intellectual part, and what people remember is the hard part yeah. of... Yeah. You know, that's how you affect me, and I will be sad, and and it will make it will be a loss, and there will be a hole in my life. Yeah. When you die. Yeah. Someone I forget who it was, but I read recently. Someone said, "People don't remember what you said to them; they remember how you made them feel." Mm-hmm. And that, I think, that's significant in living and in dying, mm. because you know, it's a. Uh, 
you know, a really traditional Buddhist thing is the, the state of mind at the time of death. Mm, right. And um, I think I think it's bigger than that. And traditionally that's important because that's the state of mind you bring into the next incarnation? You bring into your death review, your life review. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I'm not an authority on Buddhist texts, but I think that whole part of how you're held and who was there and you know if you're in pain you're in pain and how do we you know hold our lives that it's not really um, you can't do your work on your deathbed we do our work every day we do our work for the planet for a relationship for each other and, and just um, so yeah I'm think people people often ask you know should my should I let my son see my her his dying grandmother should I should they be there or will it traumatize them you know and it's so that's the only way people love to say the cliche you know death is a part of life blah 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 well how is it you know when normally the the deaths that we see and the funerals that we see in the are don't look dead. They look like they're made to look alive, and yeah. and it's our our whole way that we um, don't want to scare ourselves that that could be us. <laughs> Isn't it funny how American culture, in particular, goes to such great lengths to hide death mm-hmm. from the way food is packaged and sold? You know, in Barcelona, you go to the market, and there are dead rabbits hanging mm-hmm. there. It's a rabbit. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a rabbit. And then there's a dead chicken hanging there. And there's, you know, the yeah. fish comes with the head on. It's yeah. a fish. You buy it even in a grocery store. It's a fish. You know, it's not a filet. <laughs> it's a fish. Um, and so in America, we we sort of, it's not a filet. It's a, or it's not a fish. It's a, you know, a filet. It's not a lamb it's a cutlet it's you know like we even the language changes are yeah abundant yeah. and then the bodies are pumped full of formaldehyde and they're you know dressed in their favorite clothes and they're you know in a stainless steel ten thousand dollar casket hermetically sealed god knows with two tons of cement around them yeah yeah to so. protect them from what exactly or is it to protect us from them <laughs> you know it's, yeah, it's a, it, the the curiosity abounds in that one because <laughs> yeah, who's, who's being protected from whom here? That's right. And then, at the same time, we're saturated with these depictions of fake death, the horror movies and the mm-hmm. you know shoot 'em up westerns, and so it's everywhere in the mythology, and right. yet the reality is very carefully swept under the carpet it's it's a strange thing you'd think a culture would either be into it or not yeah you know? I, I think um it's as if well i guess it's the same with sex right porn everywhere but if you breastfeed in public or you know big contradictions yeah, yeah. the real thing is denied but the artificial depiction is everywhere yeah very strange it is strange and it it's the uh 
it happened, I think, in the 20s and 30s when you know death was taken out of the home, and mm-hmm. the funeral, the parlor, the front parlor where bodies used to be, and and birth was taken out of the home. Right. So right. it was, it, it, you know, in this capitalistic society, it was a sign of wealth to die in the hospital and and uh, be born in the hospital. And it took it it made it so antiseptic and so uh, separate. Yeah. It, that it reminds me of what we were joking the other night about. You made this amazing dinner and most of it came from the garden right outside here and we were joking about how when we were kids advertisements used to say like you know if if you use this casserole sauce or whatever it's almost as good as store-bought <laughs> and how that store-bought used to be the measure of quality it, it's sort of the same now with the birth and, and even the death in some ways that hospital was the measure of quality right. and now it's there's a return happening where people are doing home births who can afford it right poor people mm-hmm. aren't getting a doula right. and doing it at home and right um and what we're really trying to do here i mean boulder and boulder county is sort of a mecca for some of the extreme open-mindedness yeah, yeah. so yeah. you know home home deaths home funerals um home births is is more of a norm here. Huh. And what about green burial? Is that happening we, here? Um, we are affiliated with uh, an organization called Natural Transitions, and they do, um, they've done a number of trainings here, and we have done three-day vigils to where the body is prepared and put on dry ice and washed, and then for three days people come in and visit and sit with the body and the person's not left alone and then they're wrapped in a shroud and there are a number of um, cemeteries now that will accept bodies wrapped Hmm. in shrouds there's an area right (laughs) that's bumpy (laughs) oh really (laughs) yeah yeah and there's also um, natural funerals which uh, they just opened um, Linda Van or Van Buren um, is she is the director and they are it's a new business I don't know of any other one like it but they do natural funerals there Hmm. and they um, hold the space and people come you know and it's inexpensive and it's loving and it's they walk the families through and and Karen Van Buren not Linda Um, and it's beautiful it and the natural funerals that i have done you know even i've done it with people who are jewish and normally in the jewish tradition you got to get that body in the ground in 24 hours um but uh they have said it changes the grief process entirely to sit with the body Hmm. and what do you think it brings to people it brings that it's it's a normal thing to happen and what happens is that you can feel about day two and a half that they're gone at first you know they're warm and they're Mm. they look like they're sleeping and then as the body changes and the the cheeks sink and the color changes 
your process changes with them. I see. And especially with um, really, uh, you know, more difficult deaths like deaths of children. I mean, parents hold them, and and yeah. you know, they're can touch them and they can they don't have to leave them the traumatic part is when people are whisked away and the lack of goodbye and the lack of the nervous system down regulating enough to go wow i'm not in shock anymore now i'm in grief oh right so right introducing the homeopathic terms into there but (laughs) yeah yeah there there was a just recently, I don't know if it's still happening, but on um, social media, there was um, a woman I follow is uh, an expert in animal consciousness, and she's written about animal emotions mm-hmm. and things. And she was uh, Barbara. I uh, wish Barbara King, maybe. King Sullivan. No, she's a great writer, though. I love, love her work. Um, I think just Barbara King. Anyway, she was tweeting uh, about uh, an orca who's gave birth and her baby died and she was carrying the baby's body on her back for days Mm -hmm. i think five days was the last that i noticed Mm -hmm. and so this grieving process that you talk about and this attachment to the body it's not only human right it's been seen in in primates i know and elephants yeah she wrote a book about animals grieving actually Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. um yeah, so it's it's something that goes very deep, deeper than culture, deeper than species, even. Right. <coughs> yeah, we. Um, yeah, we we cut that process off, and most often I hear people saying, you know, it's been a month, and people tell me I need to get on with things, and getting on with things is really still grieving, and some days. You know, it's the waves. You ride the waves. Hmm. And um, some days it feels really fresh, and some days it feels um, like you just might be okay. And, you know, the trouble we get into is when we try to move on prematurely, hmm. when we pretend we feel what we don't feel. And, right. and, and then it gets kind of tucked away and then sneaks in in other ways. and. That is, I guess, part of, you know, the homeopath in me because I deal a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot with suppressed grief and trauma homeopathically. And that's so much of what we see in our death and uh, the death of those we love. And so we, um, part of, you know, keeping, we can, you know, we can keep tender, we can keep open um, because that's, the part of us that closes down when we don't want to feel what we feel and then the next grief happens and we either don't have access to it or we're completely incapacitated by it and you can't ever say how another like like you know on a good day we know what we need how can we know what someone else needs or how they should live or die but you know in our own you know we um can't really know until you meet it um, how to do it. I'm sure you're familiar with Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. Mm-hmm. Do you find that 
Well, for people who aren't aware, um, she argued in, I think, the 70s, right? Early 70s, mm -hmm. death and, on Death and Dying mm -hmm. came out. And in her work with the dying, she saw that they seemed to go through five stages, potentially. Some people never make it all the way through the five stages, but they were denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I've, since I read that book a long time ago now, I've recognized that same sort of five-stage, that cascade or process, as you mentioned earlier, related to the death of relationships. the Big deaths, little deaths. Yeah, yeah. All, all, all sorts of things come and go in our lives, not right. just people. Death of a friendship, death of a, you know, a job, moving away from a place you really loved, or even just a time in your life. You know, my 29-year-old right. self died right. a long time ago. Maybe not as long ago as he should have, but <laughs> he's been following me around for years now. Um, so that's the denial sneaking back in yeah. when it's because those stages are fluid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we go like, I'm still 29. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So do you do you find is that a way of thinking that is useful for you? Do those or do you think those that's oversimplified or what do you think? I um, the only I think she was brilliant and I think she had a I have heard. I think Frank spoke of, Frank Ossoseski spoke of her. She had a very difficult death herself. Mm. So we all would like to think we do that, stay, those stages like a rock star and then have a good death and it wouldn't be messy. But that's part of the not knowing and the curiosity of mm. we don't always get to say, we don't get to say. Yeah. And so I think those stages are like a rough outline. I also really like the work of... Um, Grace in Dying, Kathleen Dowling Singh. She has um, a little different, she calls it chaos, and then our ability to transcend. I think the last, that stage of acceptance, I'm kind of a, a little uncomfortable with because mm. um, you cannot want to go and you go anyway. And it doesn't mean you haven't done your work. And a, a lot of times, people really push acceptance. I wish I had a nickel for every time I, I told him he should just accept the truth that he's dying, you know, as if you're doing someone a favor. But usually when we really push acceptance, it's for our benefit, not theirs. Right. I'll feel so much more comfortable if they're okay with it. And what I find, too, that people that are more actively in their process of being aware that their time is limited than the rest of us walking around is that they will go as far as the person bearing witness to them will let them. Yeah, right. And if it's not safe, there's a really sometimes kind of an amazing intuition about how safe is this person to really tell my great truths to yeah. and my great fears. I had an idea for a podcast. Maybe I'd love to to know what you think about this. I I interviewed a guy. I don't even like the word interview. I don't feel like I'm interviewing you. I feel like we're having a yeah. chat, you know. Um, but so I I sat down with a guy. He's a Jungian therapist, 
really interesting guy, interesting life. And he, we probably talked for three or four hours. And the next day he sent me an email. He said, Chris, you know, uh, I shared things with you that I haven't shared with other people in my family. I think they might be upset to hear this if somehow they heard your podcast. And he's in his 90s. He has no idea what a podcast is or, you know, uh, he just knows there were microphones, you know. And um, and he said, would you mind not releasing this while I'm alive? Hmm. And I thought, what a, like, what a sort of enlightened approach, first of all, like the acknowledgement that I'm not going to be around much longer. So mm-hmm. there's that. Um, and he was also concerned that his some of his patients, their therapy could be disrupted by them knowing personal details about his life because, mm-hmm. you know, he's trying to Boundaries, be there. Yeah. yeah. And anyway, I, f- from that, I thought, what it, wouldn't it be interesting to do a series of podcasts with people who know they're dying and we all know theoretically but people who are like no you've you know, in hospice or something mm-hmm. right with the understanding that this will not ever be made public while you're alive now you've had these relationships do you think would that be a liberating experience for some people or is that is that something that sounds like a good idea to someone who's far away from it? Mm-hmm. I think as uh, it depends where people are in their process. And, um, I think not in the very you know when it gets really close, all the talking is done. Right. So, you know, in between, like the terminal diagnosis and trying to make sense of that. Yeah. And when some sense is made, and then when they get real for far in the process, yeah, don't no, feel good. You wouldn't want to intrude yeah, on, on that. But yeah, I think I've certainly. We did a pilot project where um, this young woman was dying of Lyme's. She's forty-one. Lyme's disease. Had it for a long time. Oh my god! Nothing worked, but it was kind of the foundation. And she was engaged. I mean, she she felt like she wanted to just be engaged until almost the very end in social media. And um, I, I think it was um, feeling cared about, yeah. yeah, and and really, yeah. So I think you could find the right people, and it would be, I think it would be really valuable for people to hear. The yeah, process, right? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm always looking for win-win situations in the podcast and life mm-hmm. in general. And a situation, what I imagine is a situation where the person feels liberated to say things that are important mm-hmm. that they're afraid to say while they're being judged. So that there would be this sort of liberation for them, like, okay, I can say this, and it's not like you know. My father raped me when I was, you know, I I don't want to get into things that are going to hurt people. But, you know, I've always been attracted to men and Mm -hmm. I could never admit that. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry I misled people, you know, whatever it is. Um, And, of course, it would be valuable for the audience to be hearing from someone who's actually, you know, beyond the grave. It's... Mm -hmm. 
I, mean, I think about it sometimes, you know, these all get archived. At some point, I'll be dead. And, you know, who knows? People might be listening to this. And, you know, I don't know if you've, I, know, I think Isaac played one episode for you. Did mm-hmm. you notice the song at the end? It's, it's at the end of every episode from the very beginning. It's called Smoke Alarm. And the song is by Carsey Blanton, who's very interesting woman um her father wrote a book called radical honesty brad Mm. blanton he's Mm. a pretty well-known psychologist anyway uh the song is all about acknowledging that you're going to die one day Hmm. yeah (laughs) uh yeah Hmm. i I don't want to give the end away but you're going to die one day everyone you've ever known is heading for a headstone you know those are some of the lines from it so this is a, a running theme in, in this podcast, this acknowledgement that live your life with the knowledge that it's finite and it can end at any moment. Yeah. And it's, it's developing an intimacy with life. And that's kind of the, and in, in there's a Zen koan that goes, not knowing is the most intimate. Because mm. it creates the spaciousness of I'm not anywhere but right here, right now. Attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where where we put our attention. Yeah. Do you have a way that you would prefer to die? Um, I would like to die with pe- people who aren't afraid. I'd like one person there who's not afraid. Mm. And to hold that, help hold that space. I'd like my children there, um, quietly. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, we don't get to say. How about you? I would like to, if I had a choice, and if, as you say, we don't have a choice, but you know, if I were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and it's gonna be incredibly painful and you've got about a month to go, um, I'd like to do it myself in a way that nobody has to clean up. What I imagine, and I, I recognize that this is kind of a heroic and silly, and, and you know, I might not have the nerve to actually do it, but what I imagine is going somewhere like Big Sur or the west coast of Ireland and hiking out to a precipice at sunset and jumping off and hitting the rocks and the waves wash everything away and the fish eat it and nobody Hmm. has to deal with it. Well, that speaks volumes because that means you're going to catch it early enough that you can still walk and that you can still think and then you can, that you've said your goodbyes and that you, yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty ideal scenario. But as I explained to you, the other, you know, and I talked to the other night about my grandfather and the way he sort of lingered and lingered and, and just poisoned the world around him over the years. That's what I don't want to do. Yeah, that's a way to come to terms with suffering, isn't it? When you just are sad and angry and sad and angry. Yeah. Yeah, I... I I think there, who was it? Never judge a man's life until you've seen his death. I don't know who said that, but I think that might be an American Indian thing. 
And there's all kinds of little cliches. Oh, we live the way we die. Well, that's not... Yeah. Die the way we live. That's not... Yeah. So what? He died just, in a car crash? What's that say about his life? <laughs> and and there's a messiness. You know, we yeah, we all kind of think it should be tidy and we wake up dead or something, but... That's the great mystery. I mean, we it's another part of not knowing. You know, we don't just hold things in the great mystery and then show up for it. You know, it's Some uh, people do. I, I I read about this this Australian scientist who I forget his name, but he was quite well known in his day and now yeah. he's pretty much forgotten and he lived in England and I think he taught at Oxford or Cambridge. And he, I don't know if there was a diagnosis or he just reached an age where he was like, okay, I'm done. And he said goodbye to everyone. And he went back to Australia, went to this place he used to hike as a child, Hmm. leaned his cane up against the tree, took off his jacket and his spectacles and jumped off the cliff. Hmm. And it wasn't sad. It wasn't tragic. It wasn't... Yeah. Yeah, some people do. And it's... also, you, um, in Colorado, there's that the movement of, you know, assisted suicide. So yeah. people get their little pills. Um, I know an elder couple who got their both got their little pills. He was part of the, whatever they call it, the Sinai Foundation or something. And he was way into it. He was a professor. Mm. She was a professor, and he suffered a long time and didn't ever do it that way. Mm. Her too. Really? Because, like, I think it it's a very individual thing. You can think you know how you're going to feel, and then it comes to it, and there's, yeah. you know, your children or your friends or yeah. your, your own work is still intact somehow. Yeah. Um, but even having those pills must have been a comfort to them. Mm-hmm. You know, having that yeah. option. I think initially they it was a comfort to them, and then making a different decision. I just... Yeah. We change, and that whole finality that that we see, like like everything I love, will be different, <laughs> and everything will be unfamiliar. And huh? Well, hmm. If I can just enjoy the sheets against my skin, what if that's enough for today? If you can enjoy it, yeah, that's that's the. Or the sun coming right? in the window, or whatever. How, yeah. The and, applesauce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Jello. <laughs> I like. I also like the idea of people dying with a joke, because I feel like humor is the only buttress against <laughs> mm-hmm. the indignity of. Yeah, I think it was Oscar. I'm, I'm coming up with a lot of quotes for some reason, <laughs> but I think it was. Maybe Oscar Wilde, whose last words were, either I or this wallpaper will have to go. (laughs) (laughs) It's brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, we know who won that struggle. Uh, Susan, I know you have to go pick up sushi for one of your clients. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, it was fun. Maybe we can pick it up again another time. All right, thank you so much. What's the name of people who, who are interested in knowing more about the center? Willow Farm Contemplative Center. It's willowfarmcolorado.org is our website. Okay. Yeah, and uh, visit. It's a beautiful place. Thank you. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> Thanks. 
All right. Thanks for listening to that. That was Susan Nemchek. You can find out more about what's going on there at willowfarmcolorado.org. By the way, her husband um, was on the podcast a couple episodes ago, Steve Mullins, the ethnomusicologist, flamenco guitarist. That's her husband. He's there at the at Willow Farm as well. So if you end up dropping in there, you'll meet both of them. Um, okay, some stuff to tell you about. We've got more shirts that just came in, the Vanthropology shirts. Uh, I've post, posted them on the website. Uh, go to tangentiallyspeaking.com. You'll see store, go to store, T-shirts, and you'll see the Vanthropology shirts. There's a picture of Cassie in one. Uncle Dan is wearing one. And Oliver um, from York's and Lanks Automotive is modeling one. The van would not have existed without his incredible help, uh, continuing help. He just changed the water pump last week. So uh, check those out. They're Civilized to Death shirts. We got a new order, a new uh, batch of those in as well. So some of those were out of stock, but they're all back in stock now. Uh, And I put the other shirts on super sale. So they're like five bucks. Basically, we're just, you know, trying to cover uh, not even all our costs, just some of the costs because trying to make space in the garage. My mother's getting overwhelmed with shirts. So if you want a tangentially speaking shirt or uh, talking out my ass shirt or which has like a lazy chimp in a hammock, I think that's supposed to be me somehow. Uh, or what else do we have there? Um, paleo modern shirts. Yeah, there's a bunch of different stuff there. So they're all price to move. So you can uh, check those out. I also got some... Let's see, I told you, you already know about the stickers. We got several different kinds of stickers. And we got some beer cozies, some really cool civilized to death beer cozies with the sad chimp face on them. Uh, I just ordered one of those one night when I was kind of drunk and up on the internet, you know, and got into trouble. So I ordered a bunch of those. I think they're like uh, four for 10 bucks. So make great I don't know, Halloween gifts, whatever the next holiday is. Um, what else should I be telling you? There's always stuff I, I should be telling you. I, I should really get professional and write all this stuff down, but then it gets boring and repetitive. Uh, okay, we got the shirts. You got the beer cozies. You got the stickers. Uh, what else? Oh, of course, you know, thank you for um, supporting the podcast. That's what I was going to do. I was going to read the names of some of the new supporters. Um, yeah, Sarah Linz, thank you. Uh, oh, the, these are some people who've deleted. Don't want to, don't want to thank them. They're not listening anymore, probably. Uh, Jerry Lynn Mooney, thank you. Uh, Angela Vandebroek, thank you. Mark Grasso, you're the man. Uh, Louib, I'm not sure. Louib, these are people in the last couple of days. James Barella, thank you very much. Kim Grogan, Kat Handley, uh, thank you all for, uh, let's see, I'm looking at the list here. If there's another, Kirk Onberg, oh, he upped it from, he, he increased his pledge. Thank you very much. Mindy Drake, thank you very much. Nick Mann, thank you. Uh, appreciate everybody who supports the podcast through patreon.com. Uh, some of you send uh, PayPal donations. Some of you support the podcast 
in in many ways i've had people write i had a, a, a cpa who listens to the podcast write and offer to handle my taxes so we'll see maybe maybe we'll i'll get some tax advice so there are lots of ways people support the podcast you can also support my endeavors by using the amazon link that you'll find at the webpage tangentiallyspeaking.com uh, if you use that when you buy stuff at Amazon, uh, percentage of what you spend bounces back my way. I don't want to imply in any way that Amazon supports the podcast, but uh, you can support me. And, uh, you know, pretty much all I do these days is the podcast. So what else can I tell you? I guess that's about it. I'm going to play uh, a different song. I'm going to play a song called Alone Together uh, just for a little change. You'll understand why when you hear it. It's by the Robert Minden Ensemble. And uh, yeah, so here's to you, Justin Bennett and Dad.
Stays for long.